about all the memories and the great times, I've got 30 seconds or so, and my friend Joseph, one of my best friends, is like, oh, by the way, this part is kind of tricky. Oh, we're just talking about this now. Great. We've got about 25 seconds. Hurry up. Tell me what's about to happen. And I'm there with, one, you know, my snowboard is strapped onto one foot, and the other one is loosely hanging off, and he's like, it's simple. It's totally fine. You're just going to stick your foot up against one binding, and you're just going to go forward as far as forward can go. And hopefully you'll either fall or stop, and people kind of get out your way. And I'm terrified. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? What do, you, what do you mean? Why are you just telling me this now? Uh, but Joseph looks at me. He's like, don't worry. It'll be totally fine. I'll go first. Like, I'll, I'll kind of get off early, and I'll clear a path for you. You know, I'll, I'll even yell if I have to for people to get out the way. You know, it's, it's going to be totally fine. And I'm like, well, what happens if... What happens if I fall? Or what happens if I don't, like, what if I just stay on the lift because I'm too scared? Like, well, what happens in these moments if it doesn't go out of your plan? And he's like, well, one of two things. You'll either fall, and they'll have to stop the lift, and everybody will have to be, you know, stopped and looking at you. And I'm like, oh, this is, like, shameful. I got it. Great. <laughs> or, or you'll just simply fall, and they'll keep going with the lift because they need people, you know, on and off. And so you might get hit by somebody. Okay, great. So now it'll either be shameful or painful. Got it. Uh, and so, but I'll never forget, it was those terrifying, you know, 25 seconds as he's finally telling me, you've got to get off the ski lift first. And then the five seconds of him saying, don't worry, I'll go first and I'll clear a path. I'll even yell at folks for you. Just follow kind of in my line of snowboarding. And in that moment, I was like, okay, great. I'm just going to follow you. This is going to be fine. In many ways, this morning, we're going to be diving into a story on John the Baptist, who is kind of like my friend, probably a better friend than my friend Joseph, but uh, in a lot of ways, clearing the path, the runway, if you will. His whole life's purpose is to be a forerunner for Jesus, to make sure that there are no roadblocks, that there are no obstacles for him to get off the ski lift, for him to kind of begin his ride of ministry. And so we are starting a new series this morning in the book of Matthew, and I want to provide a little bit of context before we dive in. We're going to be journeying as a church through the gospel of Matthew for quite some time. We're going to break it up into chunks so that we can insert some other series here and there, but the context I want to provide is this. If you look at your Bibles, if you've got them with you, if you flip a few pages back, there probably is a divider, maybe a blank page, because what that is trying to signify for all of us is lots of and lots of years in between, the Old Testament and the New. The last book in, your, in, in, the, in the Old Testament in your Bibles is the book of Malachi. This is a prophet who saw, who would look upon Jerusalem, this place where God was supposed to reside, where he was going to reign and rule as king. And then all the walls were torn down. The city was asunder. Babylon had come and wiped everything out, and now people were in exile trying to make their way back in. And Malachi's vision, the prophet, was able to see that God was going to come and return one day. Malachi 4 begins with, a day is coming. A day is coming where the stubborn, the arrogant, the evil will all be judged and wiped away. And for those who fear the Lord, the kingdom will come back. Malachi starts by saying at the end of this chapter, the day is coming, and what God will do is he will send someone in the spirit of Elijah the prophet, and that's how you'll know, because he will prepare the way for the coming king. And then you flip a few pages, and now we're in the Gospels. 
Those 400 years were years, were centuries of radio silence from God. Nobody heard from God. And then you think about how John the Baptist, his story begins with his parents. His father was a priest, and then he got a vision from the Lord, and the angel said, hey, by the way, I'm picking up right where Malachi 4 left off. The literal verse is used again and says, your son is coming, and he is coming in the spirit of Elijah. And he's going to make ready a way for the king. See, this is, this is a big moment for the people of God. John is kind of a big deal. And so as we begin this series in the book of Matthew, I think it's, it's proper, it's right, that we begin with John in Matthew chapter 3 because he is paving the way. He is doing the work of a faithful forerunner. He is removing any and all roadblocks so that people can see Jesus clearly. That is the work of a faithful forerunner. And so Seven Mile Road, the invitation for you this morning is this. Follow in the footsteps of a faithful forerunner. Follow in the footsteps of a faithful forerunner as we study John. And we can do that by doing three things that we identify in this passage together. We see that John the Baptist, as a faithful forerunner, declares the kingdom. He embodies its values, and he exalts its king. So let's dive in together. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter, of chapter 3. It says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Okay, so we're going to come to identify here that the first step, if we're tracing the footsteps of a faithful forerunner, step one is declare the kingdom. Declare it. What does that mean? What does John do? His activity is made really clear. If you look at the words preach, a voice crying, if we studied those words down to their roots, we've come to identify that they're both emotive in nature. That John is speaking, but he's not just speaking words, he's speaking out of conviction out of something he holds passionately true. And so the activity of a forerunner is that at, at, at its core, it's you can't be silent. You want to be a faithful forerunner, you cannot do so silently. So that's the activity of declaring the kingdom. Who is the audience? Did anybody catch who John is preaching or crying to? It says, not a person or a people, but a location. Look in the text with me. It says, he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. The prophet Isaiah speaks about John coming, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And so this is interesting. John is not out in some desert with nobody around but just sand. That's not where he is. He's in the midst of people. He's walking around seas of individuals, and yet it's described here as the wilderness. Why is that? It's because John's audience is based upon the location. You see, wilderness was used to describe deserts or desolate places, and not just about what's cultivating, what plants are around or what animals are roaming. It's used to describe lifelessness. And so John would look at the sea of people all around, and he'd realize that, that everybody is, is lifeless. This is a sea of people who are lost, who have no life beaming out of them, that they are wandering in a desolate place because they are lifeless not just the plot of land that they're walking on. You see, you and I, we, we get to live in one of the largest cities in the country. 
over 6 million people in greater Houston and growing every single week. In one of the most diverse cities in America, the most diverse, over 140 languages spoken before you ate breakfast this morning. And as we get to reside here in this place, you know what John, I think, would say to you if he were sitting right next to you? He'd look around where you go to work downtown. He'd walk into your building with you, and he'd say, man, the wilderness. <laughs> he'd go to your home as you walk your street, and you see your neighbors waving with their dogs and with their kids running around, and he'd say, man, the wilderness of Houston. You see, it's not because there isn't life cultivating around the trees that are growing back finally after the storm. It's because there's lostness, lifelessness in human hearts everywhere. And so John the Baptist would look at you and say, your audience is all around the wilderness of Houston. And so we've got the activity to preach, to cry because of conviction and emotion. We cannot be silent. John would say, your audience is the wilderness of Houston. And so what is the announcement? What is he actually saying? We get one of these short and simple, you know, style sermons. I think Matthew's just trying to get us to the point here. I'm sure John spoke more than five or six words. Repent is what he says. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, the announcement of a faithful forerunner is tied to his motivation. You see, the prophet Isaiah said, okay, the guy is going to come before the Savior, before the Christ, before the King, and he's going to come with a message. He's going to come with a really specific purpose to pave the way, to make that road straight. And we see that John just says the simple word, repent. If you don't know what that word means, it's as simple as this, to change your mind. To change your mind. To physically turn from what you were pursuing to something else, to something better. And so John's message is clear. You've got a lot of roadblocks to see Jesus clearly. And it's a lot of things that are buried deep in your heart, the way you think, the way you speak, the the things that you do. And so the first act, the first step to removing the roadblocks to see God clearly is to repent, is to identify what those things are and to turn away from them, to change your mind. You see, it is an invitation by John, this faithful forerunner. Your first step into being a person who can see Jesus with real clarity is to identify the ways that prevent you from doing so, the areas in your heart and in your life, and to repent of them, to own them, to speak them aloud. And so this is step one, that we might be faithful forerunners coming after John, that we would declare the kingdom by being a voice that cries, by preaching something, by not being silent, and rather looking all around us, but the places that we work, the places that we live, everywhere we eat, everywhere we go, and realizing that we are in the wilderness because there is lifelessness and lostness, and that we would be a people who invite others. You've got so many roadblocks to see God clearly. You've got so many roadblocks. So step one, declare the kingdom. And now we're going to come to find that step two is, is in my opinion, a little bit harder. It's not just to not be silent. It's not just to speak up about this kingdom. It's to actually embody its values. Embody its values. Look with me in verse 4. Verse 4, it says, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up learning about John the Baptist, and you'd imagine some guy with really scraggly hair that goes down to his feet 
you know, he's wearing like fur that just is all, all over the place, and he's picking up bugs off the trees. Like that's the image that I have growing up learning about John the Baptist. So why is this inserted? Why does Matthew, of all the details he leaves out, of even John's message, his sermons, and he provides a couple of sentences of these details, it begs the question, why? You know, I think if we were to analyze John's life, we'd realize that his retailer of choice is the stables, you know? His retailer of choice is the stables, and his restaurant of choice is the backyard. Now, the even in saying that, I live in the Heights, and I feel like that's going to be like a storefront one day. The stables, where all of our goods are made of leather. And all of our, you know, all those, the places we source our materials from, you know, eat certain types of food. And that's not what I'm talking about. It's like the literal stables that John is, John is so unimpressed with himself. So unimpressed. And the way that he realizes the kingdom, receives the kingdom, it affects how he lives his life materially. Materially. So why does Matthew insert these details? He inserts them because John is living in such a way that debunks the way that the world would define satisfaction or that you've made it. The world would say, you want to know how you know you've made it? That you'll be truly satisfied and content in this world? How much stuff do you own? How many things have you accumulated? Not just that, but what have you experienced Have you been to those Michelin star restaurants? Have you eaten those delectable items? Have you you experienced all that this world has to offer? That's what society, that's what culture would say, ah, you've made it. Satisfied. Deeply content. And so how does John embody the kingdom here and its values? He says materially, that, that just won't satisfy. And I know it's so deep down in my bones that I get my clothes from the stables and I eat out in the backyard. This is not an invitation for you to start picking up bugs and eating. That's not what this is. What it is, though, is to challenge the way that we actually will believe we can be satisfied in this life. Is it the clothes you wear? Is it the things that you own and have accumulated? Is it the experiences that are out of this world that you can post on social media and always look back to? John the Baptist would say, you want to embody the kingdom and its values? Know this, none of those things will satisfy. None. That's a tough one. It's a tough one to not be convinced that the things we have amassed and the things that we have experienced will not satisfy us. And so we can follow in John's footsteps by allowing the world to see a different set of priorities in your life. Right? They'll see the way that you spend your money. They'll see the way that you give your money. They'll see the way that you even abstain from certain things because your satisfaction comes from somewhere else, from someone else. You see, that is the way that we can begin to embody the kingdom and its values materially. But not only that, not only that, but socially. Look with me in verse 7. Verse 7 reads this. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Okay, now we're getting into a little bit of a a dicey situation for John. He seems like he's got a chip on his shoulder. He seems like he's got a little bit of fire in the belly. I love that about John, but what is he trying to teach us? You see, imagine John 
right? He's, he's down in the river, and everybody's coming. It says all, multiple times, all of Judea, all the people are coming to the, to the river. And John looks at them all and says, come, confess your sins, be baptized. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? Like we, we love that picture of John the Baptist. And then he sees the religiously and politically elite, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who come with their fine robes, who come with their little, you know, memory verses right above their forehead so that they can let everybody know just how holy they are. And John looks at them and stops everybody and says, you pack of snakes, who invited you? And all, all kind of collectively hold our breath like, whoa, John, isn't everybody invited to the Jordan? Isn't everybody invited down to the river to get baptized? So why? Why is John so harsh to the religiously and politically elite. It is because the Pharisees and the Sadducees go against everything that John is about. Right? We had identified that a faithful forerunner removes any and all roadblocks for people to see Jesus clearly. That's the role of a faithful forerunner. What the Pharisees and Sadducees have done for years, for centuries, is persuade the people of God that there are lots of roadblocks. And they're, they're ones that you have to sidestep and essentially pay homage to the Pharisees and Sadducees for. You've got to do things just like them. You've got to trust on them. You've got to lean on them. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these powerful and prestigious group of people, have essentially made a system where they get to create all the paths, all the paths and the obstacles in front of them so that the people can't see Jesus clearly. They cannot see God and engage him without the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so John looks at them straight in the face and says, you, you brood of vipers, you pack of snakes. Matthew is so strategic in how he writes this. The very next verse talks about fruit. He's, he's trying to help us see that, that John is looking at these religiously elite politically elite group of people and it's essentially saying you are just like a snake in the garden. You are just like the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve that they were had a distorted view now of God. They could not engage him without covering themselves up, without patching up fig leaves together. All of a sudden you are just like your father the devil. You are just like that serpent. You see this accusation would not have would not have been received lightly. So what John is doing here is he is identifying for us, no matter how powerful, no matter how authoritative, no matter how influential and prestigious a group may be, if they instill roadblocks on the path to see Jesus clearly, we have to be a people who can respond in those moments, who can parse through what is acceptable socially. You see, how we can follow John in his footsteps as a faithful forerunner is not going around calling people snakes. That's not what this is about. Rather, we just cannot cower before the powerful. We cannot cower before the elite or the prestigious. We have to be a people who are so convinced that it's all about seeing Jesus clearly that we can be people who remove roadblocks, even if there are others who are more powerful and authoritative than we are. Finally, the final way to embody kingdom values, not just materially and not just socially, but honestly. Honestly. Look with me in verse 8. 
Verse 8 of Matthew 3 says this, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay. So after John has exemplified for us how to embody kingdom values materially, socially, he looks at us and says, we have to do so honestly. There's a phrase that is really critical that we've been trying to actually unpack as a community for months and even years. Ever since the inception of Seven Mile Road, we have tried to convince you that we are a people who always are falling forward. We fall forward. No one is perfect. No one has it all together. And so keeping with repentance means that we always, literally in the Greek, is to weigh it properly, to value it appropriately. The, the author of Matthew is trying to tell us, always have a posture of repentance. Live your life of the kingdom now before us honestly. We are all imperfect. We are all called to fall forward, to repent and repent again and repent again and repent again. That's how we bear good fruit. Not only are we honest with ourselves, what that will do is it will actually lead us to be honest with others. That not coming out of a place of righteous sympathy, oh, poor you who are doing all things wrong, but out of a place of deep humility and empathy. Me too. I fall all the time too. I'm doing my best to fall forward too. And in that space, John is able to, with conviction, with honesty and boldness and courage, look to those who are so convinced that they've prayed the prayers. They don't need this repentance. They don't need this baptism. They've prayed the prayer in the past. Or, you know, better yet, look at my family line. Generations upon generations of God-fearing people. Or look at my attendance sheet. I'm here every Sunday morning. I clock in. I clock in and I clock out every single Sunday morning. What John is doing is looking at people like that and saying, if you are not bearing fruit by keeping up with repentance, if you do not honestly assess how you are not seeing Jesus clearly because of your own brokenness, because of your own sinful heart, you are at fault. You are here in this space where John is going to look at you saying, don't do that. You cannot be secure. You cannot have salvation in any other hope than in seeing Jesus more clearly each day, each month, and each year, and everything else will fail you. And so if we are people who actually embody kingdom values honestly, we will bear fruit by keeping up with repentance all the time and inviting other people to do the same. Looking at them eye to eye, not above them righteously, but eye to eye with empathy. We're all trying to figure this out together. And so that's step two. That's step two of actually following in the footsteps of a faithful foreigner. We're going to be a people who declare the kingdom, and we're going to be a people who embody its values materially, socially, and honestly. And now this final phase, this final phase that we learn from John the Baptist of how we can actually be faithful forerunners is that we will exalt the king. We will exalt the king. Look with me in verse 11 of chapter 3. Verse 11 reads this, I baptize you with water, says John, for repentance. 
But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You see what John is doing. What John is doing is he is trying to draw like a visual T-chart. He says, here is me, John, and then here is the Christ who's coming, the king who is going to be seated on the throne. I baptize you with some water. That's it. The king, the Christ, he baptizes you with the spirit of the living God. I baptize you with water that leads you to repentance, to continue to bear that fruit, to go back to repentance again and again. The Christ, he baptizes you with the spirit that leads you to the fire. For those who have trusted in Jesus, who have placed their faith in Jesus, this is a fire of refinement that'll make you look more and more like Jesus all the days of your life. Or it's a fire for those who do not believe. A fire of judgment. You see, John recognizes that in, in contrast to the Christ, in contrast to the king, his, his view of himself is right-sized. It's very, very small, and appropriately so. You see, in John 3.30, we get kind of the equation, the biblical equation of exalting the king, as we should. The biblical equation is, is in the context of John's followers. John's disciples are saying, John, don't you realize that everybody's following after this Jesus guy that you've now claimed as the king, that you've now claimed as a Christ? What about us? We had hordes of people coming down to the Jordan every single weekend. We were killing it. Now they're all following this other guy. John looks at his disciples and says, this is the equation of exalting the king. He must increase and I must decrease. It cannot be one or the other. It has to be both. He must increase and I must decrease. You see, the equation for you and I to exalt the king of the kingdom is that we would be right-sized in understanding he is everything. He is the Christ and we are not. You see, we say that phrase a lot, especially on our staff. Uh, I think about our Monday weekly meeting. So Jeremiah, Michael, and I, we get together every Monday, and we share how our week's been. We confess the things that were hard. We pray for one another. A phrase that gets thrown around a lot in that room every Monday morning is, you are not the Christ. It might surprise you that we would say such a phrase. Like, why, why would you think that you're the Christ? And yet, when we talk about the struggles in our homes, how we're not loving our wives the ways that we wished we did, we can't secure the future for our families the way that we wished we did. We don't see our, our flock, the people that we love and care so deeply about, and we can't make you do what we think is best for you. We can't guide you the ways that we want to guide you. We fail time and time and time again. We, we look at each other and have to remind ourselves, but you are not the Christ. You are not the Christ. It is not on you to secure your family's hope. It is not on you to change everything for the better. It is not on you to make all things right and good. You are not the Christ. And in those moments when we look at each other face to face and say that phrase, it's telling us two simultaneous things. Ah, he must increase in my view and I must decrease. It's not about me. It's all about him. See, this is how you and I can exalt the king by appropriating him into the right place and properly placing yourself in a lower place. You must decrease if he will increase. 
That is the biblical equation to exalting the king. And that is really good news. It is really good news that you are not the Christ and that I'm not the Christ. It's really good news for this specific reason, that Jesus, the Son of God, who's about to make his, his mark on human history, as we get to the next couple of verses over the next handful of weeks, we will come to find that Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh. He took on flesh and he entered into the wilderness of humanity. Lifeless, desolate, broken. And what he did in that space was he did not reject you, he did not rebuke you. Instead, he came with a message of deliverance, a message of hope, hope of life and life abundantly. And though Jesus lived a life that was perfect, though he deserved to be cherished and exalted and enthroned, his coronation looked very different from what he deserved. Instead of a crown of gold, he received a crown of thorns. He was given a robe in mockery. He was beaten and spat upon. He suffered so that you and I might never have to. He bore the weight of sin so much so that the Father looked upon him and literally had to look away because now all of a sudden he looked like you and me, the culmination of all of our sin heaped up onto the shoulders of Jesus, the Son of God, the rightful King. And there he is with a crown of thorns bleeding, and he was raised up not to, a, not to a seat of gold, not to a throne room full of jewelry, but instead he was heaped up onto a cross. And as he bled upon that tree, that, that was the coronation. That was a coronation of a king that was willing to suffer on your behalf so that you might never have to. And so that is the declaration from the king himself. Now the kingdom is here. The kingdom is not just at hand. It can be experienced and relished in because of what he's done. And so if you're sitting in the room this morning and you are still wrestling through what it means to, to trust in this Jesus, to be a part of his kingdom, to, to, to trust his reign and rule as your king, hear this, Jesus has not only died the death that you deserve to die. He rose from the grave, and on the third day, in conquering the grave itself, he extends his hand and says, there's life available for you. Real, lasting, eternal life. And you get to embody and live into this kingdom now and forevermore. That's the invitation for you. And from this passage, the invitation for you, for, for the believers in the room, for those who have already trusted in Jesus, the invitation is this. Won't you follow in the footsteps of a, of a faithful forerunner? You see, John the Baptist came. He came and he was able to pave the path, remove all the roadblocks so that Jesus could be seen with clarity when he came at first his first coming. You and I, we get to be faithful forerunners to Jesus' second coming. You see, there's coming a day. And what the Bible would say is that it's coming soon. It'll come like a thief in the night where Jesus will come again. And so you and I are invited now, if you're a believer in the room, to declare that the kingdom is at hand. It is here right now. The audience is everyone out there in our city and in the world lifeless, lost without him. We get to be a part of embodying its values that, that entices other people to realize, ah, there might be a better way. 
There might be more satisfaction than this. There might be something greater than this so that they too might be able to see the king, cherish the king, and exalt the king. Won't you accept the invitation today, believer in the room, to be a faithful forerunner to Jesus' return? Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Well, God, we want to thank you this morning. Thank you for the example of John. Thank you for sending him to pave the way that he has taught us how to be a forerunner so that others might see Jesus more clearly. God, I do pray. I do pray that for those in the room who, who are still trying to figure out who you are and what you've done, God, I'm, I'm begging you, that you would open their eyes, that they would see that, that for those living under your reign, living in the kingdom of heaven now at hand, God, that they would see a life beaming with joy, abundance of life. God, won't they see you clearly? Won't they hear your voice calling to them? And so God, for the rest of us, I just pray that we would be announcers, proclaimers, declarers of the kingdom, that we would not shy away in silence, but rather, God, that we would be faithful to run the race, to pave the way, to remove any and all roadblocks, God, for the lost and the lifeless people we love and hold dear in Houston and in this world, God. Won't you reign supreme, not only over our lives, but over the lives of those in our city and in our world. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.